Today, I'm welcoming Chrissy Carter to the podcast. This is our third go-round at an interview due to technical reasons and schedules, etc. And I am so excited for this episode. It is such a great discussion with the two of us. And I did things a little bit differently. I have a whole series of questions that I asked her just off the cuff that she didn't have to review ahead of time. And I so enjoyed being able to have these great conversations sparked by these questions. So I hope you enjoy the episode as much as we enjoy doing it together. Thank you for joining us today. Stories. We all have them. They're the compilation of your journey from where you started to how you ended up where you are today. Titanium Blonde is all about sharing women's stories. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and everything in between all of that. I'm Sherry Eckert. This is Titanium Blonde Talks, and I'd like to know, what's your story? Hello, and thank you for joining me today for another episode of Titanium Blonde Talks. Today, I welcome Chrissy Carter, and just a little sort of an update. We have been working on this interview for a while, and in the midst of all of that, Chrissy became a mother, which is so exciting. I'm just so happy that she's here with me today because she's got some great insight into all of the things that have happened in her life, and I hope that you'll enjoy hearing them too. A little bit more about Chrissy. She's a self-described homebody at heart, happily spending days puttering around her apartment with her beloved Billy and their daughter, Chloe. She loves to cook for her family and friends and also loves great style. Chrissy is a devoted student of yoga and mindfulness and believes that teaching yoga to be her life calling. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chrissy. Welcome. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Would you give the listeners a little bit more background on who you are and how you ended up as a yoga instructor? Because I know it's a great story and I want everyone else to hear your transition. <laughs> sure. As you know, I left college and jumped into the world of Wall Street. And that's where I spent the first years of my professional life. And it was clear from the very beginning that it was not for me. However, <laughs> I learned a lot. And through the process of sort of exploration of myself, I realized that in order to stay grounded, in order to tap into what I really wanted to do, I needed an outlet. I needed an outlet for my stress, not just the stress of being on a trading floor, not just the stress of knowing that I wasn't where I belonged, but the stress of not knowing what was next, uh. that, that feeling of like you've lost your compass. And that really prompted me to explore different movement modalities. And I found yoga and it was like coming home. So when you say that you were not knowing what was next, were you also maybe in some way trying to figure out just where it was you were supposed to be? And then you walked into finding this yoga practice that sort of lit you up. Absolutely. And that was, yeah. It was a moment of vulnerability and not knowing what I was meant to do with my life. I knew yeah. what I was not meant to do. That was clear. And sometimes that's the impetus for making a choice is, is yes. being very clear about what's not working. While I learned so much on the trading floor and it challenged me in a lot of really important ways, ultimately, I sort of fell into the path of yoga serendipitously. I was practicing very regularly and 
I felt called to deepen my practice. So I enrolled in a teacher training and very quickly felt like this is something that I had to explore. I didn't really know where it was going to take me, but I trusted it. And so the rest is history. With my journey into becoming a yoga instructor and a lot of other people on that same path, kind of saying the same thing was that they walked through that door, they found their voice, or they felt like they found the place where they were meant to be. And they had no idea where it was going to go from that, but just that they wanted more to keep learning more to keep moving on the path. And most yoga instructors that I've spoken to have talked about it being you are a perpetual student of the practice of all of the limbs of yoga, whether it's the asana practice on the mat or whether it's the things that take place off of the mat that are the other pieces that make up the whole of yoga. And I just find it so interesting that so many people from so many different backgrounds, so many different ways of life, all found this connection through yoga and just what a tremendous practice it is that just draws people in and the people that find that sort of those locking puzzle pieces that make that that happen for them, that it's it's sort of a universal story. And I never really realized that until I started doing these interviews and interviewing a lot of different yoga instructors that that was really, you know, the story that comes across is it's that I walked in the door or I some for some people it took several classes, but it's that space of I felt like I was home to yeah. quote your off of your website, you know, coming Absolutely. Home. And yeah. what whatever you decide to do with that path, it, it really is about connecting to the teacher within and finding the clarity and uh, a connection to your greater purpose, which perhaps is just revealed through the practice. So whether that means that you become a yoga teacher or whether that means you do something totally different, it's it's so cool to your point, like that the practice is this uh, laboratory where we get to really uncover our yeah. truth. I liken it to the analogy of peeling the layers off of an onion. Yes. Just sort of peel it back until you get back to that deepest place in your heart that speaks to you that we tend to not always pay attention to, but right there is that nugget telling you, this is it. This is you. This is your space. This is where you belong. So you've been teaching now for 15 years and you've probably seen your practice and your teaching change with time. And I know that you've also done some teacher trainings as well. I'm just sort of curious about how that progression informs how you teach now. I approach yoga at a much different space than when I started 25 years ago and teaching 17 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long, but I'm in a much different space because I'm in a much different place in my life and my body is telling me all sorts of different things than (laughs) I started. So how has that path for you changed how you teach or how you approach your teaching? That's such a great question. Uh, It's changed it in every possible way in that I really truly believe that practicing yoga and teaching yoga, it's like apples and pizza. They're two totally different (laughs) phenomenons. And teaching is really about teaching more than it is about yoga. How do we communicate what it is that we have come to understand? So through 
the uh, last decade plus of leading teacher trainings, it has made me the teacher that I am, which is really all about trying to find a way to communicate what I understand about yoga in a way that's going to land, hopefully, with the people in the class. And it's interesting. I sometimes compare like teaching to being a tour guide at like a big monument. <laughs> Remember when you, if you've ever been to Europe and you see the the tour guides with the big red umbrellas and there's yes. you know, tons of people on the tour and everyone's there for a different reason. Right. Maybe they're walking from different paths in life. Maybe they're in different chapters of their life. Maybe they speak different languages. You know, uh, maybe you're the kid that's being dragged there by your parents. So <laughs> all of this to say that when people walk into our classroom, they're all coming from a different place and they're all looking for something different. Yes. And while we might argue that the ultimate goal, maybe the shared goal is a sense of connection, but I mean, who's to say everyone right. has a different reason for practicing yoga. So to teach is really how do we facilitate this practice in a way that feels workable for very different people at very different stages of their life with different needs and priorities. So yes, to your question, I, I absolutely have felt that teaching teacher training has really helped me better understand what my role is as a yoga teacher. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting to note. And you know, there was a quote by my friend Jenna, who said, you know, Sherry, we have to remember as teachers that we are not just being a part of someone's life or affecting their life for the one hour or whatever it is that we have them in our class on the mat, that what we say and do while we teach goes with them outside of the classroom, they take it with them in the rest of their life. And that, you know, that was so profound to me that you really think about the responsibility sometimes that goes with that. And most of the people that I've spoken to is that they take that very seriously in terms of how do I best communicate what fuels me to be a teacher and to practice so that someone else can hear those words and assimilate them in a way that that works for, like you said, for whatever reason that they are here to either practice or um, become an instructor. So it's so odd. Like you, I found yoga. I got some support from a, a yoga instructor to become an instructor myself. And I never really thought about the whole thing, but as I moved along through the path, it was the thing that was the next right thing to do. And as I move further in the practice, I just, I want people to be able to see me as more of a guide and someone who offers them a space for them to have a very honest and open curious filled practice on their mat and not necessarily is it just about the poses but about meeting themselves right where they are in that moment in time and as you said everybody who walks through that door is in a wildly different place than the person standing next to them on the mat i find that so compelling that we can find that unity and that connection or whatever it is that draws people into that same space and especially those that come back repeatedly that's beautiful so, sherry Thank you. It is. <laughs> Doing all of these interviews and I, you know, talk to a lot of yoga instructors because that's 
a lot of who I follow and, and who inspires me. It's made me really stop and think more deeply about how I do what I do, why I do what I do, and how to be able to continue. I mean, I want to be teaching yoga wearing splashy yoga pants when I'm 90. So how do I, <laughs> how do I, how do I make that Absolutely. be the reality of, of what I'd like to see happen? So that's wonderful. I'd like to ask you a question. How do you stay grounded when the world gets overwhelming? Well, I have a couple of practices that I rely on. My creative practice grounds me a lot. And by creative, I mean anything where I can enter into a project and then sort of let go. So some examples are cooking, art, even writing for me is a creative practice because you stare at that blinking cursor and you really, you might have an idea of what you want to say, but really you have no clue. (laughs) Um, I think that the creative practice reminds me about my purpose and it, it allows me to just be myself without any expectations or agenda. And that I find to be incredibly grounding. Also the time that I spend with my inner circle my family, my friends, you know, they're sacred to me. They are everything to me. And when I, when I'm feeling like I'm spinning out of control or the, or I'm struggling to manage my relationship with the world, I do, I sort of go back to the start. I go back to the family. I go back to my, my support. And that I also find really, really helpful. I'm assuming that's where you feel the most rooted and grounded. Yes. And that's, that's what draws you back. So let's let's step back a step and then I'll ask you what's one of your favorite childhood memories. One of well, I sort of have a period of time and that that space at my grandparents' farm. And I keep coming back to that because it really was such a magical place to be a young child and it was uh, this beautiful farmhouse, the door was always open, family would come and go. It was a place where you felt welcomed. It was sort of everybody's happy place. And I mean, just to be able to spend a lot of my childhood in that place, I don't know. It just, to me, sparked a true appreciation for what it means to be at home, what it means to create a home. And I love my grandmother dearly. And uh, it was just a, a really, really special place that I feel grateful and thankful to have had as a part of my childhood. That's wonderful. I still dream about it to this day. Like I, I I sometimes I wake up and I'm like, Oh my God, I was at the farm last night. It's amazing. I didn't realize how much of an impact it had really had on me. And is that sort of a newer realization about the impact that it had? Yes. I think now that I have uh, my daughter and I'm, I'm creating this, this family space, this home space for her, I'm very, in touch with what contributed to my own childhood and my sense of security and support and love. And, and, and that's a huge influence for me, you know, just a really, really special time. And I know that you have mentioned before that your desire was always to be a mother and that you had a path that wasn't necessarily the easiest path to get to that point. I'm wondering if as you were going through all of the spaces that you had to move through to get to the point to be able to bring Chloe home with you, did you do a lot? Was there a lot of thought process around, you know, these are the things that I feel are important, or is it just coming from that deep knowing, that deep intuition inside of you that as you move along the path of motherhood, that this is the space that you really, truly want to create? Well, I mean, there was a lot of doubt fostered by my personal path 
to becoming a mother because it seemed like every effort that I put forth on the path was met with some level of complication or disappointment or heartbreak. And so for a while, I don't know, I, it, it, it was a, a, a true struggle to really show up with hope and to choose hope and to choose faith. And the whole practice taught me so much about my own strength and my own resilience because I had to pick myself up over and over and over and over again and keep going. And that taught me a lot. I mean, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And yet right. without that experience, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I, I believe strongly that Chloe was waiting for me. So I went through all of these things and she she was there waiting for me for her, you know, with without right. any of those struggles, I wouldn't have her, that unique soul, which is Chloe. So I, I believe and have faith in the process, but wow, it was it really challenged me to my core. It brought me to my knees. And, you know, it's only in looking back I think that I have some clarity around what it is that it taught me, if I can say that without sounding cliche. (laughs) Well, that doesn't sound cliche at all. And you kind of get the sense of it was that that trial by fire or that space of there may have been days where you were hanging on by your fingernails and, you know, just not sure what was going to happen or where you were going to end up. And so I think a lot of times we just have to do what we need to do to survive and to stay, as you mentioned, resilient. Amen. I agree with you. And to be able to try and find that place of hope can be sometimes very difficult. And so to come through that other side and to carry all of those feelings, all of those things that happened in your heart while you were doing that, to come out the other side and now be able to look back on that and have that help inform you on your path as you move through being a mother. You know, they say that there, there, there is no book on how to raise a child <laughs> and we all do the best that we can and everyone makes mistakes. But I think sometimes having some of those hard learned lessons or hard earned triumphs makes you sometimes a little more mindful about what you're doing. And then of course there are the days where you walk around with spit up on your shirt and you're, you haven't had a shower and your hair is a mess and you're just happy. And you, you go to bed and go, I'm not quite sure what happened today, but we made it through the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, I totally relate to that. I totally relate to that. And as I am moving along here, I mean, I'm like what only seven months in. So I still have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And I've heard that one could argue that you never really fully feel like you know what you're doing. No. You're just winging it and making it up as you go along. But yes. um, I'm definitely feeling more and more every day centered and grounded and uh, falling into the rhythm of having no rhythm, which is really what I've learned. That's a, that, that's that, a very an interesting perspective because that's exactly what right. it is. <laughs> but I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Being a mother is is everything I've ever wanted and I feel... I feel so thankful to have this opportunity. I really am. I could not be more grateful or in love. (laughs) That's such a wonderful thing to say. And at some point in time in her life, she'll look back on all of that and have memories like you do of your family in those spaces. And that's to me is 
the biggest gift that we can give our children is that sense of home, that sense of being where their roots are. Mm-hmm. And and so when they move out into the wider space of the world, whether, you know, the hardest thing for me as a mom was making that transition from no longer being a full-time everyday mom to my daughter launching out and going into the world in college and not wanting to continue to be there to sort of like Wonder Woman using my bracelets to deflect every shitty thing that might come in her path. But to know that as she walked through the world, that she took that sense of being rooted and grounded and her family always being there for her, regardless of where she was in the world. And that was, you know, that made all of the sometimes conflicting choices I had to make and the mistakes and missteps that I did. The only thing that mattered was, is that she was okay when she went out into the world. I look at things like that and I look at the compilation of all of the people and and no one person, even if they're raised in the same family, I don't think any one person has the exact same experience because- It goes back to what we were talking about in the classroom. Yeah. Absolutely. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, what's blowing my mind too is how motherhood is really asking me to step up and show up for myself because I'm hyper aware that she's watching my every move and that I'm setting the example. So if I want to teach her how to love herself, then I first have to love myself. If I want to teach her how to be present, then I first must show her what that means. And I, I am um, sort of blown away by the ways in which mother's motherhood has really demanded that I get very clear about what I'm doing in my own life and my own practice, because this is the template that I'm offering my daughter. I want to show her, I mean, even if, even when I screw up, what are the tools that I'm using to help myself move forward? You know, I trying to put as many tools in her toolbox as I can. There you go. And I mean, and that's the thing is, I think I have a friend, a longtime friend who was a elementary school teacher for years. And she said, Sherry, I've never come across a parent yet in all of my years that has ever said to me or intimated to me that they want to fuck up their child as much as possible. (laughs) And she said, you know, everybody, we learn from our parents, we do what we know, and we do the best we can with any situation that we're in, and then we learn and, and move on and hopefully do better. But she said, it's so interesting that we sometimes forget something that you so succinctly just talked about is that we have to show up in our own life because those kids, they're watching every single thing that we do mm-hmm. as a parent. Yep. And they're seeing what we're doing and it can either be something that can spur them on to higher heights or it can be something that creates a space where it creates some anxiety or or whatever it is. But when she made the comment of saying, I've never met a parent who said, you know, I totally want to screw up my child as much as I possibly can. <laughs> and you and the reality is, is that I, I think as parents, every parent wants their child to have better than what they did or mm-hmm. to do better than what they did. And in the end, all you can do is do your best and then the rest is up to them. And I find it interesting because I was very, I was only 24 when I had my daughter. So I, 
I didn't even know who I was half of the time right. for a large part of her life. So I listened to you and, and you have the benefit of some more life experience and some more life wisdom and some more things that you've been through to be able to help you be a lot more present in your parenting. Mm. And I, I find that very admirable that you are, oh, that that's you. something that you're really thinking about. You're so kind. Thank you. You know, I heard a quote uh, once, maybe you've heard this, the way we speak to our children becomes their inner voice. Yes. But I'm starting to wonder if the quote should read, the way we talk to ourselves becomes our child's inner voice. The example that we set, the relationship that we have with ourselves yeah. is the template. So it's really sort of shined a spotlight on a lot of stuff I thought I had all wrapped up and figured out. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the humility in showing up again to my work as if for the very first time, like, Chrissy, really? This still, still again? Yeah, it's a big call to action for me. And I find it motivating. I find it overwhelming. I find it inspiring. But at the end of the day, I just really want to give her the tools to love herself. So, And that boils it down to the most finite point. And especially for females in our society, we're not always given the message from society, from the media, from so many different aspects that we come into contact with every day, that loving ourselves is a good thing or that it's something to attain, that we're either bombarded with images of the way we should look, the way we should think, the way we should talk, all of those things do more about trying to form that inner voice than they should be. And so I, we ha I had an interesting conversation yesterday in an interview and talking about how girls are sexualized at so, such a much younger age and that boys, that's not even something that's in their lexicon of having to think about. Mm. But as but as females in society, that that is just sort of the way things are. And that really sort of rocked me to my core a little bit when I thought about it and just how that can impact the conversation that you have with yourself. Yeah. And how you ultimately feel about yourself. I know for me, I struggled for more years than I ever want to think about, about thinking that I wasn't enough or I was too much of something. It always felt like I was wrong. And it's like, that is not, that. that's so not what I wanted my daughter to know. And I'm thankful for the fact that she's pretty rock solid in exactly who she is and what's important and what isn't. I'm sure that she still has those inner conversations, but she has this emotional intelligence that I never had at her age that it just impresses me so wow. much. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I'm not quite sure where she got it from. I'm assuming that it came from me on some level. Absolutely. It, was, it came from you. <laughs> through, through good or bad um, parenting. But uh, well, we teach it, so much through our vulnerabilities as well, you know, and. Ah, that's it. I never really thought about that. That's. That's a great way to put it. Well, let me ask you this. What makes an experience meaningful? Wow, that's a great question. What makes an experience meaningful? Well, I think for an experience to be meaningful, it has to really drop us right into the center of our own truth. By that, I mean, is there a really real connection taking place where you feel like you are present and also participating in a way that simultaneously 
grounds you, but also keeps you open and curious and available to receive. So I, I guess maybe a combination of openness, but also connection. Meaning for me really comes when I'm fully present and when okay. the people or the situation I'm in taps me into something much long, larger than myself. Okay, so I'm going to segue into this next one then is yeah. where do you feel most present? I feel most present in a couple of places, specifically in teaching. I feel very present. And um, not to say that that's like a constant all the time, because I can definitely sense when I am having like sidebar conversations in my mind that are getting in the way <laughs> of my responsibility to serve. But in the moments where I can step out of the way and get out of my head and into my heart, and open myself up to what's really happening in the room and to become a conduit for the practice and, and, and to offer that up without my agenda. That to me is like what it really feels like to be present. And in, I've had some sort of awesome experiences in the classroom where it's like just happening through me. Do you know what I mean? Yes. That oh, is, yeah. That's truly meaningful to have like a real, real connection with the people in the room. Yep. So I guess really, you know, sort of talking this out, it, yeah, it's about connection. It's about connection. And the other place I, I feel that is is in my relationship and in my family. Yeah, there's meaning there. Yes, there is. How do you balance being self-serving and selfless? Oh, well, if, being, if self-serving is moving you towards freedom, then I think it's service. Okay. Does like that make that. sense? Yes, it does. Okay. A lot of sense, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hey, true. You know, like, and, it, and you know what? But the thing for me is that it doesn't need to make sense to me. I, I, I want you to speak from your heart and, and what makes sense to you. And, and so that's, but actually when you said that, I was like, that's, that's perfect. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. If our efforts on the path are towards our own liberation from the patterns and beliefs and the crap that keeps us feeling perpetually that we're not enough and that there's something fundamentally wrong with our experience that, yeah, then it, to, to be self-serving in that way, to move towards a space of freedom. Yeah. To me, I guess that's the, where those two roads cross. I love it. I love it. That is awesome. Who inspires a sense of adventure within you? Oh my God. That is without a doubt, my beloved. He is, his middle name is Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, he thrives under pressure. He is not afraid to speak his truth. He does not back away from a challenge. Uh, he really inspires me in that way because by nature, I'm, I'm much more of an introvert. I think I'm an extroverted introvert, but I'm definitely an introvert. I'm thoughtful. I spend probably way too much time thinking about something. And oh. Billy uh, is someone who really sort of takes life by the, by the horns and just goes with it. And, and he's really inspired me to, to have more of a sense of adventure in my life for sure. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Where is your favorite place to be a guest? Oh, what a good question. I mean, besides a fabulous hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. With room service and a beautiful bathrobe and nowhere to be. That sounds like oh, a that great place wonderful. to be a guest. <laughs> I think probably my sister's house. Um, I, I have 
uh, two nieces and a nephew. And every time we go and spend time there and I'm a guest in her home, I mean, it's family, but right. it feels so special to me to just be a part of that. I love that. Yeah. That's great. What do you continually ask yourself? Hmm. What is my opportunity for growth? I know that you spent, what was it, five years working on the trading floor in the stock market. Mm -hmm. Remind me again what your degree was. Economics. That's right. And did you do anything? I know that you were an artist. I mean, you were a painter. I mean, you've done a lot of different things creatively Mm -hmm. in your life. Did you have, did you do any sort of art study while you were in school or were you just all the numbers girl? When I was younger, I did a lot of art and music and dance. But when I went to college, it was sort of all business. And um, I, although that, that said, I, I was part of the dance company in college. I was part of the acapella group in college. And I painted in the back room of my, uh, my off-campus apartment when I, when I was a senior. So yeah, I, I made space for creativity for sure. But in terms of like my studies, yeah, they were, they were more business focused. And then as you were doing all of these <laughs> crazy days at work, I meant, I just remember you mentioning about, you know, the yelling and the phone <laughs> slamming <laughs> yeah, totally, <laughs> and, and everything going on around you. Like, I, I got to say that I have a hard time picturing you in that space. I know doing those things. I know I, that's what everyone says. I have a hard time picturing it. And yet that's what I was doing <laughs> for real. It was like, you know, sink or swim. So very quickly, I learned that if I was to survive on this trading floor, I needed to join, join in on the fun, so to speak. So yeah, I got real loud. But there was always that little voice inside of me that said, Chrissy, really? This is like, not in your comfort zone at all. But you know what? People on the trading floor, they move towards conflict. They move towards challenges. They move, I tend to move away from conflict and away from challenges. So it was, like I said before, it was a really important lesson for me to learn. Uh, Working on the trading floor, I think made me a much clearer much clearer in my own purpose as well, because they don't really have time for bullshit. Well, and I find the older I get, the less tolerance I have for bullshit. Yes, agreed. It just doesn't serve. It's a a waste of time and life is too short. Life is just too short. And I was having a a different conversation with somebody. We were talking about something and talking about working in the corporate arena. She had said that she'd gotten some comments about sometimes she made people feel unsafe and that she was too passionate and, you know, several other comments. And I said, you know, I said, on the one hand, you want to try and communicate as clearly and with as much intelligence and information as you need to for your job. But on the other hand, you're also not the jackass whisperer. So you don't have to spend your time trying to make it palatable to everybody that you might come across Mm. while you do your job. And she said, I never really thought about that. Mm. And as women, I think sometimes, you know, we're behind the eight ball as it is because we have to, if you're in the corporate world, which I was never good at it because I can't stand somebody telling me what to do. And I have no filter. If I think you're bullshit and what you're saying is bullshit, I'm going to tell you that. And I don't care what your title is or how much money you make right. or you know what it says on your business card. Right. So that doesn't always go over real well, with, <laughs> especially with, with men in the corporate world. But she was talking about how as women, 
I told her I had more trouble with women in the corporate arena than I did with men because they were, you know, backstabbers and taking credit for your work and doing things. And she said, well, Sherry, she said, I have witnessed the same thing. And I think it's because there's not enough opportunities for women to move up the chain or to become more successful or whatever that is. And so I'm, I guess I'm wondering in the five years that you were doing that, what, how did you, I mean, did you bump up against that glass ceiling at all or... Not really, because I wasn't there long enough. And um, the structure, the hierarchical structure is really not set up like that on a trading floor. But I will say that I think back to your point about, you know, struggling with women more than men in the corporate workplace, this idea of like, feeling pressured to be something that you're not creates a lot of angst and conflict within ourselves. And I have a really dear friend Fran Hauser, who wrote an incredible book called The Myth of the Nice Girl. And it was all about how we feel pressured to be more aggressive or to take on more masculine qualities because we feel like that's the only way that we can survive or compete in in the workplace. But really by embracing your the the power of your inner kindness, that that there's a there's a stark difference between being kind and being um, a pushover. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think that if I could go back and do Wall Street again, I would really tap into that inner power instead of questioning questioning it and thinking that I had to be something that I wasn't. You had to be the, the power woman behind the power suit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah that that's something that I, I mean I worked in technology for years back in the days before the term brotech was anybody knew anything about. And it's so interesting because I had so many wonderful mentors who were male, but I also worked in arenas where, you know, men were the ones that were in charge and they didn't like the mouthy blonde telling them what they could and couldn't do. And that was my job. Mm. And so sometimes it was, it was very difficult uh, to bump up against that brick wall. I looked at it more as a brick wall than a glass ceiling hmm. in terms of, of what I had to deal with. But, and I think my physical size helped me um, in a lot of situations being almost six foot tall. And, you know, I'm never going to be a little tiny Tinkerbell. So there's not much I can do about that. And, and so, you know, I just, that's just how it is. And I think that that made it a little easier for me in certain circumstances, but I just noticed in some of the spaces that I worked that it was all about, I think you hit it right on the head of having to take on those masculine qualities and be competitive and be pitted against each other that puts us in a space that's not serving at all. Yeah. Um, I listened to an audiobook by Rebecca Traster called Good and Mad, and it's about women's anger. It's about women's feelings. It's It was such a illuminating thing to listen to. And at times I had to turn it off because it would make me so angry. Because <laughs> I was like, I am mad as hell and I am True, not it's this anymore. <laughs> but it, it, she had such great information in there. And it just made me think about the fact that as women in the society that we have lived in for generations, 
they sort of pit women against each other that they pit mothers against each other. They, they want, they want women to be a certain thing and look a certain way because that's what the overarching patriarchal society Mm -hmm. has dictated for all of these years. And it's so interesting to me now to see the sort of the switch in politics and the, what I'm calling the death rattle of the masculine clench on being in control and how scary that is for so many people, not just men, but women, but certain women too. Absolutely. And so I think that you talking about moving in that space of coming more from kindness, not being a pushover, but moving more from a space of kindness and respect and consideration is so important. I think that that is some of the thing that causes the discourse that people feel. I think people feel like there's bigger walls between us than there actually is because that's what we've been told. And I, I don't know. I, yeah, it sort of makes me wonder who's listening to what these days. Right. Right. (laughs) What motivates you to progress? Um, I, I really am interested in personal growth. So what pushes me forward is, the, the, the knowing deep inside that the next step I take, the next step I take, whether it's right or wrong, is going to move me closer to a, a clear understanding of myself. And to be at peace with myself is something that's a priority for me because, you know, it hasn't always been that the relationship that I have with myself has not always been clear or kind. And so I, I feel like as I progress forward, whether it's personally or professionally, I'm just looking for more clarity. I'm looking for more compassion. I'm looking for a more honest connection with myself. And because I I feel like the benefits of that, I feel so intensely in every aspect of my life on every level. And I want more of that. Then I'm going to segue into this. What are your most audacious aspirations? What's something that is so (laughs) wild that maybe you think it would never be, but so... What, what, what is the most audacious aspiration that's... I think for me personally, writing a book feels like an audacious aspiration. Who am I to write a book as some of the chatter that I have to sort of navigate in my own mind. And I have a whole lot of excuses to support that. Like, I don't have time. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't, you know, I, I, the perfectionist in me really wants to have it all figured out before I get started. But to own my voice and trust it, that would be, I think, an audacious goal of mine that I, I really hope to to make happen. My response to you would be, who are you not to write a book? I know. That's exactly <laughs> the right, right question I mean... to ask. <laughs> um, and I agree with you. I think that one of the biggest pitfalls in our human experience is not making the most of the gifts that we're given. Someone once asked me, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you'll ask yourself, how well did I love and how well did I use the gifts that I was given? Yes, I I think those are those are some really sort of poignant things to think about as we come to the end of the road. But the other thing I would ask you is is that as I see the compilation of, of what you put out into the world. Mm -hmm. It's all about telling a story. Yeah. So you writing a book is telling a story. And as women, we have traditionally been the collectors, the keepers, the storytellers, Mm -hmm. the teachers. Yeah. And so that is what 
fuels my passion in what I am doing is to be able to create a space where as many women as possible can tell their story down to the most simple everyday story to the most audacious, big, exciting, whatever it is, and everything in between, between because every single one of those stories is important. I agree with you wholeheartedly. So the thing for you with your book, I would say whatever comes out of you from where you start to where you finish up is exactly the story the world needs to hear. Thank you, Sherry. That means a lot. And I trust that deep inside. I think like any great adventure that you take on that you know is moving you closer to your own freedom. I mean, there are going to be some mental obstacles in the way and that's actually part of the journey. So I'm I'm taking it one step at a time. And now that I have Chloe, it's even more of a priority to me to really sit down and just start writing and see where see what happens. Well, because she's going to witness you doing this. And so that's going to have an impact on her. And I've come up with this, this new phrase, the parkour of the mind, right? So we I jump on that. things. <laughs> we leap to grab the, the, the brain is leaping to grab the rope or the rings or, you know, whatever it is. And that really is, is, you know, I started out thinking of it as like a, as a, either a pinball or a ping pong ball, but it really is those mental exercises that go on that can sometimes derail us. And at the same time, those mental sort of exercises are the ones that can fuel the creativity that we didn't even know was there, right? We put challenges in our own path in order to to move through them. Like they're there for a purpose. And, and, yes. uh, I totally believe even though, that. Even though they, they piss me off a lot of times <laughs> when that happens. Exactly. But, but that truly, that, that is very true about all of that. Yeah. When do you bring people together? Uh, I hope that I bring people together in the classroom that we understand that we're there to share in this experience of yoga together. I love to bring people together around the table because they feel like you share the gift of food and conversation that is meaningful to me. I really just want people to feel seen and loved and for them to find the space to know that they can just be exactly who they are. That takes me back to your memory of the farm yeah. and your family and your, yeah, it, it all circles kind of back to Isn't that. Isn't that funny? Yeah. It's like a Seinfeld episode, you know, like where you never know where the, <laughs> where the story's going. And then somehow all of these like unrelated stories converge in this like perfect symphony. Yes. Is the soup Nazi in there somewhere? Probably. How does courage manifest in your work? Oh my gosh. Um, courage manifests in my work by um, just just the sheer fact that I show up to teach to, feels like a courageous act in that hopefully I'm removing the masks that, that in my mind separate me from what it is I'm trying to accomplish. You know, sometimes standing at the front of the room in any moment of insecurity, whether it's in a conversation with someone or it's in a challenging chapter of your life, like we tend to lean on masks that we wear in order to hide our insecurities. And so for me, like just showing up and and releasing some of that armor and asking myself, how can I just show up as myself for these other people? I mean, that to me feels courageous, letting go of the agenda and really being receptive that that challenges me in all the right ways. And I, I'm constantly hyper aware of those moments in the classroom where I've somehow distanced myself from my students. So 
those moments for me um, feel courageous, but they also feel right. And it's interesting that you say that I have had yoga instructors in the past who are very, they don't share a lot of their, I would say, not necessarily personal life, but the, the, the personal pieces that make up who they are with their students. I mean, I'm right out there. If I'm not feeling good or, or whatever it is, we, we talk about that in class. We, we talk about how does that affect our day and how do we use the practice of yoga to helpfully move beyond that. I tell stories where I laugh at myself and the silly, stupid things I do and, <laughs> and you know, tripping and falling or trying, you know, as I'm teaching them something new that I was teaching myself and I fell over and hit my bed because I had to practice in my bedroom and things like that. And I think that is what I think that that is courage is to be able to be vulnerable from your heart and to share it with other people, never knowing what kind of response that you're going to get. But I think that that is a part of what draws those students back is that they know that they can walk in that door. You are truly who you, you present yourself as truly who you are. So it gives them the space to be able to move into that space on their mat. And yeah. hopefully they can take that off of their mat out into the world at large. Yeah. That's my sincerest hope. How does your body communicate? Can you elaborate? So when you are going through something that's challenging or maybe causes you to take a step back how does your body communicate or what is your what is your body communicating to you that you are taking those messages ah uh, okay because at first i thought maybe we were talking about like self-expression through the body which is well you, you could take it you can do it that way too okay well but i actually liked what you were what you were digging into because i think the body's talking to us all the time a lot of us just don't listen <laughs> Most so, of us don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so being really being a good listener, I think is something that I'm trying harder to do because I, I tend to be like that kid on the playground that's just so involved in what they're doing that they forget they have to go to the bathroom. Like it's important that you, you know what I'm talking about? It, that happens it, to me every single day. Right. It's, in, <laughs> it's important that you listen. I mean, that's a metaphor, but I, but it's meaningful because it's really important to listen to the body. And I think that also circles back to this idea of self-care, that self-care is just a constant practice of listening. There is no like one regimen that, you know, if you just do X and Y and Z, that that this specific uh, finite practice is going to somehow make you feel balanced or in oh, alignment with yourself. That. Yeah, it's, it's really a conversation. And, it, and it's, it's like being on a sailboat, like the winds are going to change. You have to be able to tack your sails accordingly. So if you're not listening, then it's really not self-aware self-care. Self-aware self-care is knowing that like, what do I need right now? And am I okay with the fact that perhaps it's non-traditional or outside of my comfort zone or not in the box of what I would define as self-care? But yeah, so my body talks to me quite clearly. Um, and I think I'm, I'm doing a better job of listening. I know that we talked about this once before, but that you have found as you are on this path of motherhood and learning about everything as you go along, that you have to be able to take care of yourself so that you can then give to everyone else around you, Absolutely. including your daughter. Yes. And so it's, you know, I always find it 
interesting when people talk about every morning I meditate and every morning I do this and I read for 30 minutes and I do, and I'm thinking, I'm a Gemini. The idea of having to do the same thing every single day makes me want to just scream. I mean, to me, <laughs> that is just like, and it doesn't allow- This is good to know because Chloe's a Gemini, so I'm, I'm taking for notes, the, for the flu. Okay. For the <laughs> fluidity of life, you know? And I mean, I get people who say to me, so what is your one-year goal? What are your five-year goals? Um, just to make sure that my underwear is clean and I still have a roof over my head. <laughs> Other than that, I have mornings where I wake up and go, I'm not sure I even want to put pants on today, but thanks for showing up. So uh, those are the things that always crack me up. And then this whole thing of, you, you, you know, you need, you need to meditate every day and you need to do this. And, and then that says to me that we're setting people up to fail if they don't feel that they do these same things because the people who are so-called successful who do these things every day, that if I don't do that, I won't be successful. And it's like, you know what? We need to remember, just like you said with self-care, it may not be traditional. It may not be what someone else does, but true self-care means listening to what yourself has to say and giving it what it needs, mm -hmm. whether, whether traditional that's or not, risk, you know, you know, whether that's sitting on the floor and eating the, um, Nutella out of the jar with a spoon <laughs> or, you know, going on a walk or getting a massage or whatever it is that is taking care of yourself. I, I also find too, that self-care is not so much about what I do, but the boundaries that I draw in my life ah, around that. what yeah. I don't do, the people yeah. um, that I want to spend time with because they nourish me and the people that I know will maybe take away from my energy. So I, I think it's really like the day-to-day -day principles of honoring your own needs that are the fundamental, uh, is the fundamental foundation of, of self-care, of listening to your body. Absolutely. And that's such a great way to describe it. I I think that, like you said, when we were talking about the body talking to us, that we don't listen to what our body has to say. And I learned that in a very difficult way because I continued to not listen. I continued to be the energizer bunny and continue to think that I could do it all and, and just stuffed all of those things that I didn't want to deal with, like behind me, like in the trunk or the back seat or whatever it was. And it's just like, you know, I'm just going to push those things behind me and then I don't have to worry about them. And the thing is, is that when you don't listen to your body, it keeps talking to you louder mm -hmm. and louder and louder. And then it becomes a physical manifestation. And yeah. you then have to deal with some sort of health issue as a result of the fact that you didn't listen to what your body has to tell you. Mm. And that was, you know, I had to learn that not once, but twice, unfortunately. But it's, it's something that really hit home in terms of like you said, setting boundaries about the spaces that I'm in, the people that I'm around, the things that that I allow to come into my life in terms of what I'm watching, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to. Yeah. I mean, I've got I've gotten it dialed down to that space these days, but it took me a long time to get there and to understand just how much of an impact all of those things have. And to me, that's like you said, setting boundaries. Sometimes for me, that's the biggest self-care thing that I can do for myself, whether it's 
you know, meditating or, or any of that other stuff, just being able to set those boundaries. Cause I was never a good boundary setter. I'm unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you know, we learn where to draw the line in the sand by stepping over the line and realizing that that was not a good idea. True, true, true. So you have a Gemini too. Well, be ready for that one because it's it's gonna it'll it'll rock your world a little bit. I I I have already a feeling. Well, she's already my greatest teacher, so I've put my seatbelt on. I'm ready to go. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today, Thanks, and Sherry. I want to thank you too for allowing me to just ask you so many questions off the cuff. The thing that I have learned in our previous conversations with you is that. I can do those things with you and you're, you're willing and able to shift those gears and, and meet me there. And I so appreciate it because those were some questions that I was really curious to find oh, out. What I, you asked really tough, but good questions. And you got me thinking and I, I appreciate that. It's, it's good to really, um, to dig a little deeper and to start figuring out like how do all these things interconnect? So I thought you did that like beautifully. Oh, well, thank you. And again, I appreciate your time so much. And, and... I appreciate yours, Sherry. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I will be talking to you soon. Thank you.